first of all, it's awesome. Awesome. In your chair, they, uh, they gave everybody these little candy canes. It's a little story. They're all from the kids. So we take them with you so they won't think you didn't want it. So uh, um, you don't want to break the heart of a child over Christmas. So um, this is some of the privilege that we have, right? We don't get a lot of opportunity to do that. Space doesn't allow it. Time doesn't allow it. But when we gather together as a community and we realize that this thing that we have is made up of people from all walks of life, all age groups, all demographics, all things. And we can gather up here and share those same principles that this season really is about not just the birth of Christ, but the promise that Jesus not only came for us, but will return again. That his death and resurrection has given us new life and that everything about Advent is cloaked in that reality. That we're not celebrating the birth of an infant some 2,000 years ago, but we're stepping into the promise that God loved us enough that he gave his son who lived and was crucified and was raised from the dead and promises to come again. And we live in expectation of that second advent. So advent is the season remembering God's promise and his promise to fulfill that promise in coming again. And we celebrate that in its entirety. If you've been with us for any period of time, we think really differently about Advent. We try and push ourselves to think differently about the sort of consumer mindset that drives a lot of our Christian culture and worldly culture when it comes to the season of Christmas. And, and so last week I kind of shared some things, and I'm not going to go through it all, but just to kind of catch you up to speed if you weren't here, to share a few things with you about the season as we step into these two weeks, because next week's going to be a, all scripture and song, kind of redirecting our hearts when it comes to how we think about Christmas. And and I kind of started off by saying this last week, like, what is Christmas about really? I mean, for all of us, we would all say, you know, Christmas isn't about presents, right? It's a, it's about, my my son would say, Christmas is about presents. It's about Jesus, but we still get presents, right? I mean, that's his, like, I get it. I said it. Now can I get mine? Like we, the reality is, is that we all know that, but our culture tells us that it's about something else, right? And I sort of painted a picture last week about how if you watch TV any period of time over Christmas, you get a picture that Christmas is really about that sort of family thing, that hot chocolate kind of baking sugar cookies, the Lexus in the driveway with the bow, and your family's having a snowball fight, but there's no one's cold. You know, it's like this beautiful picture of all that you are not, and we are striving to be that. And dad's playing the piano, and mom's sitting on it singing Christmas carols with a Santa hat on or whatever weird picture you have about Christmas. But the reality is, is that it paints this picture that Christmas is about having stuff. It's about things. It's about how we engage the holiday by putting these things around our lives, right, to dress them up and celebrate it. Now, we all know that Christmas is about stuff. We all know that it's about, not about presents. And, and I kind of told you a few statistics that sort of put that in a little bit different light. The reality is the Americans, Americans today, we will spend this holiday season, we will spend $602 billion between Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? $10 billion of that will be on decorations for our homes and yards. We live in a consumer culture that in those 30 days will spend more than double what we will give to nonprofits and charities for the entire year. We'll give $320 billion away, but we will spend about $602 billion this Christmas on our own engagement in the season, right? So we live in a, in a culture that values engagement in this sort of consumerism, right? I also told you that there were, you know, a bunch of other statistics that we could run through that were somewhat staggering, but those are the two that we hang on to, like we spend. And then I showed you a few things about how the world lives and kind of made us feel a little bad about the fact that three bill, or 300 
Wait, three hundred three billion people, excuse me, live on less than two dollars a day, right? And we sort of went through these poverty statistics about how staggering it was um, compared to what we engage in, right? The reality is, is that every 20 seconds a child dies because they have lack of access to clean water through waterborne illness. And we talked about the fact that we will spend $15 billion this year on bottled water in America that we will end up throwing away. And the statistics say that we might be able to solve the world's clean water crisis with $30 billion. The reality is we'll spend $602 billion on Christmas, 10 of which will be on decorations. And we really went through some of these things and really explored the sort of staggering nature of it. That the reality is that there's 1,300 homeless, peoples in o- homeless people in Oklahoma City tonight. 366 of them are completely unsheltered. It means they're sleeping outside, not in the mission, not in a shelter, not in a transitional housing facility, but just living on the streets. 500,000 Oklahomans will go to bed hungry. One out of every five children will not be able to eat tonight in our state. We talked about the reality that for, a, for a, a donation to the regional food bank, for every dollar, they can feed five people, right? That's how their system and math works. And so for the $900 that the average American family will spend on Christmas, we could spend 45, uh, feed 45 hungry people, right? Or three meals a day to a hungry child for almost four years. I mean, it's unbelievable the sort of tension that exists between the consumerism of our holidays and the reality of the world around us. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't buy presents for each other. That's not where this is going at all. But the question at the, on the, on, sort of on the onset was, what is Christmas about? And what I challenged us to last week was really to engage this kind of concept, that this Christmas, we should want to worship what matters. We all worship something, right? Those statistics demonstrate that, that we worship consumer, we worship by consuming, right? We worship with our resources, right? I told you that the average American family has $10,000 in credit card debt. Most of those averages are about 15.99% interest. And the average American family that spends $900 on Christmas will put 80% of it on a credit card. Why? So our kids can have a nice Christmas. Whose definitions are we using for what this holiday is about? And so what we opened up the doors to last week was we're going to worship something, right? We need to worship what matters. And what matters is that this entire season begins and ends with the worship of God and the glory of God. And we give a little bit of a token head nod to that by showing up on a Christmas service on Christmas Eve and making sure we're dressed really nice because Christmas is about worship. But it gets about an hour of play in our Advent season. And what I challenge everybody to was to think differently about worship and we use a different definition. This week I want to I take that one step further. And I want to begin to explore through the idea of investment. So this season, I want us to invest in what matters. So we worship what matters, Jesus, right, God. We want to invest in what matters. I'm going to take a little bit different angle to get there. Um, I'm going to take a little bit different angle to get us to that place where I talk about what that investment really is. I mean, I could sit here and talk about the fact that there's some verses in the Bible that really point to the fact that we should invest relationally in people. And presence, C-E, not presence, N-T-S, right? That we should invest our time relationally. So Jesus lived incarnationally. Show you those verses. But I want to take a little bit of an abrupt, different angle to get there. And it's not a typical kind of Christmas picture of, you know, bright stars and uh, camels and mangers and those kind of things. It's a, it's a picture out of the book of James, chapter 5. And I want to do it this way because I want to expose the lie of the world to try and turn your thinking about what you're going to engage and invest in over the next two weeks upside down, because I certainly need to do that myself. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to James chapter 5. 
and uh, we'll pray and dive into that this morning together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here and worship. We thank you that you draw us into this place. God, we thank you that you are bigger than all that we know and understand. And I thank you, God, that sometimes statistics like that that I just sort of throw out are, are lost on us. But you use them at the right times to redirect our heart with us. I thank you that you are a God that is bigger than our best effort. I thank you, God, that you are what our worship is all about and what it's directed to. Take a moment in your own life, just right where you sit, and just ask God to, for the next moments to open your heart to his truth. Just pray it. God, open my heart to your truth. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Just pray that God will move in their life. Each week I tell you, let's be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, the truth is we invest in so many things. And looking at my own life, I invest in so many things that don't matter. So, Lord, as we unpack your word this morning, I pray that what we would come in contact with and come in kind of in, in the presence of is that, that you, you're calling us to invest in other things, the things that matter to you. And so, Lord, turn our worlds upside down a little bit. Teach our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' perfect and holy, celebrated and risen name. Amen. So a roundabout way, right? No Luke 2, no shepherds, no mangers, no shining stars, just... James giving a very powerful yet, and pointed, yet I think incredibly relevant word for a young group of Christ followers who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together. So if you've got your Bible, open up to James chapter 5, verse 1. Now, for those of you who've been coming for a while, we explored James verse by verse in about 2012. So we're going to revisit a few things that you may hopefully sound familiar, but um, I know that probably don't because I forget what I preached on last week, so I can't imagine remember from 2012. But this picture in James is, is really powerful because the whole book is written to a group of believers challenging them to unpack a deep and authentic faith in Christ, right? Because they're coming from a Jewish background where relationship with God was about tradition and history more than it was about knowing who God was. Knowing who God was was for the right family, for the right job, for the right season, for the right time. But it wasn't a personal experience. And Jesus came so that we could have this personal, intimate relationship with God, right? And so what James is trying to do is show this group of believers that through Jesus Christ, they have access to holy, mighty, majestic God. Well, in chapter 5, he takes a short break from that changes his audience from that young group of Jewish people, and he basically says, I want you to pay attention because there's a group of people in the world that are totally lost. And I want you to learn, and I want, I want to warn you about them, and I want you to learn from their misguided vision of the world so that your heart doesn't fall into that same trap, which is why I think it's such a relevant word for us. So let's look at James chapter 5, and then we'll kind of unpack a little bit. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. 
cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, and you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of the slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered innocent, the innocent men who were not opposing you. Well, that's a bummer, right? Hey, man, brought my kids today to hear about Christmas. Thanks for the word, Trev. Fattened calves and slaughtering and burning, and it's great. It's not a Christmas passage, right? It's not one that we walk out of here saying, man, love and yule logs and like mistletoe. Like, this is awesome, right? This is, this is a passage that doesn't seem to fit in our understanding, right, of Christmas. But in light of everything that we just shared, of how we engage our resources in our lives over this season, what we do over the 30-ish days from Thanksgiving to Christmas, how your life looks, how my life looks, the sheer absolute busyness of this season. I mean, have you been to the mall? I mean, it is a driving movement of engaging in busyness and things. And what James stops for just a moment And he says, listen, all these instructions I've given you on how to live, I want to pause and redirect, and I want you to hear me address this group of lost, wealthy people. Now, here's the thing. Most of us will sit here and say, doesn't apply to me, right? I'm not rich. I am not rich. And we skirt around the Bible's kind of words of warning about wealth and about material things and about being rich because none of us believe that we're rich. And if I were to sit down with each one of you individually, just the two of us hanging out, and I would look at you in the eye and I would say, do you believe that you are rich? Every single person in this room would say, no. And it's not that token humility. We really don't believe it. Because in our culture, in our sort of celebrity-driven, you know, watching TV, all that kind of wealth that we see around us, there's always someone that has more, has better, has bigger. So no matter what tier of income or socioeconomic bracket you fit into, you are not wealthy because there is always someone more. Let's pause for a moment and just pretend that you are wealthy, right? Because the reality is that 300 or or 3 billion, excuse me, people live on less than $2 a day. That if you make more than $35,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 99% of the world's population. So let's do away with our definitions of wealth for just a moment. That's more living in comparison. Like, yeah, I'm not wealthy compared to so-and-so, compared to how everybody else lives. But the reality is, in terms of the world's picture, every single one of us in this room, for the most part, is staggeringly wealthy. And we live in excess and abundance. So we skirt the Bible's definitions of money and stuff because we don't have to deal with it, right? Because it doesn't apply to me. But just for a moment, just for a moment, entertain the thought that just maybe a few of these things are applying to how we live. Because James gives a very specific warning that I think we need to hear, when, especially when we think about those things that I've shared. So here's kind of what he does, right? So James says, listen, I'm going to give a few warnings. And they're going to be pretty powerful and they're going to be pretty direct. They're not going to be the things that are like, oh, I need to be careful of that. They are almost accusation-like. And this is what he says. Listen, listen to you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Now, weep and wail are really powerful words. They're actually words of mourning. They were words that were used in funeral processions. They were words of deep and absolute brokenness, all right? In chapter 4, just a few verses earlier, James addresses this group of Christians, and he says, listen, I want you to weep and wail and grieve and turn your laughter into mourning, right? Because your sin has broken God's heart is basically what he says. 
And he uses that same same reference saying, I want your heart to be so broken, to weep and to wail, to grieve, because your sin is real. And he uses those same words here, and he says, listen, those of you that are lost in the ways of the world, that are engaging in those, you wealthy people who are misguided, right, weep and wail, because misery is coming. What James is, is alluding to is that something bigger, there is a day of judgment that is coming, and that we are going to have to hold our actions accountable, which none of us can do, but God in his infinite love and mercy sent his son Jesus so that we don't have to, right, justify our sin before God, but that Jesus dies for our sin and becomes a mediator between us and God, thus covering our brokenness. But he's addressing a group of lost people who are engaging in the world and living in the world, and he says, you don't even understand what's about to happen. But you should be in a state of weeping and mourning because misery is coming, right? I don't like to understand or think about those verses in that way, but the reality is is that the picture that he's painting is one of sin. This self-indulgence, this kind of gross engagement in culture is sin. And he uses the same language that he addresses with the believers a few verses earlier to say, look, your sin breaks God's heart. But see, we don't treat sin with gravity in our culture, in our Christian culture, I mean, especially. Sin is sort of like, oh, we all do it, and Jesus forgives us, and it's fine, and we probably shouldn't do it, and we laugh it off a little bit. But the reality is that sin leads to death, and it breaks God's heart. And we kick it around as if, oh, I just need to apologize. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'll, I'm going to go to church tomorrow, or, or I'll tell Jesus I'm really sorry. I'll, I'll beg for forgiveness or whatever it is. And we sort of token apologize for sin. But very seldom do we stop and allow our hearts to grieve and wail and mourn because our sin has broken God's heart. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying whether you're a, a rich, wealthy person who is so lost and misguided that, that you should want to have your heart broken, or whether you're a follower of Christ who is engaging in sin, sin breaks God's heart, period. And misery is coming. In other words, there is a real day of judgment that's coming. Jesus is returning. We celebrate an Advent is not the coming of the Christ child 2,000 years ago as an infant, as if Jesus never grew up. We still worship a baby lying in a manger. The reality is that baby grew up, became a man, died for your sins, was resurrected, sits on the throne, and as we explored last week, is majestic and holy and mighty and demands and deserves our worship. Right? Our sin breaks God's heart. And so he says, listen, we're anticipating the return of Christ and a misery is coming. Now, there's a way to advert that, and we're going to get to that in a moment. Your wealth, verse 2, has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, right? They will testify against you in your flesh like fire. You have hoarded your wealth in the last days. Not a really lovely picture, but here's the thing. The short of it is this. Stuff is temporary, right? We show our wealth and our sort of um, kind of demonstrate our wealth in different ways today, right? We do it in cars and houses and things like that. But in that culture, it was clothes. Clothes were not only hard to come by, fabrics were incredibly expensive, and dyes, colored dyes, were really expensive. And so you demonstrated your wealth by wearing fancy clothes, by wearing robes that had adorned in colors and other things. People knew you were wealthy because you weren't in, like, brown burlap, right? You were in some fancy thing that shined, and it was purple or whatever. And you're like, wow, that's really nice, not a whole lot different than what we do today, right? We all look at brands and look at things. Now you're looking at these pants. Well, those are really nice pants. American Eagle, baby. <laughs> the reality is we demonstrate our wealth in different ways, right? That culture 
demonstrated it through clothes. And listen to what James says. James says, listen, the stuff is temporary, right? Your wealth is rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes, right? They've eaten the very things that you invested all your money in. Your gold, your silver, they're going to corrode, and they're going to testify against you. Why? Because you put your, your desires into things that don't last, right? They will testify and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. That's a powerful picture, hoarded wealth. None of us do that, right? We don't hoard things. We just save, right? Save. Difference. We see that TV show. I don't do that. Hoarding, that's a difference. That's not, I don't have enough dollars to do that, right? So, but he says, listen, hoarding has this selfish picture to it that says it's mine, and if you take it from me, I don't know what to do. If you've ever really watched that show, right, hoarding, or very, the idea of when you, someone removes something from me, it feels like they're pulling a part of my life away. Now, of course, there's all kinds of, of mental illness that goes with some of those things, but the reality is, is that we're very similar. We become attached, deeply attached to things, right? Our identity becomes in those things. We become attached to clothes, jobs, work life. It becomes our identity, right? But they're temporary. James goes on to say, look, these things are going to testify against you. They're temporary, right? Look, the wages you have failed to pay your workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Simply saying this, the people that helped get you here, where you are, you haven't paid them. You're not treating them with kindness. You are abusing and using the people in your life for your own glory. You have forgotten the people that matter. And they have cried out to the Lord, and God has heard them. Basically saying, look, you've forgotten what matters. You got a bunch of stuff, great. But the people that are in your life suffered for it. The workmen suffered for it. The people around you suffered for it. And we don't even recognize them. We're so driven by that thing, whatever it is, right? Goes on to say this. Goes on to say, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter, right? You've condemned to murder innocent men, not opposing you. He said, listen, you're living on earth in self-indulgence for me. This is about me. It's about what I can get, about what I can do, and about what I have, right? And he says, he uses this, this kind of metaphor. You have fattened yourself in the day of the slaughter. Imagery is this. A cow or a lamb or whatever that's going to slaughter has no idea what's coming. It just doesn't. It thinks it's going about its normal day like always, and it's eating and eating and eating and eating on the very day that it's going to be killed and served as food. It's a very graphic image. But think about what James is saying here. There is a day of reckoning that is coming, a promised judgment day where we are going to have to stand before God. And yet we walk around this earth consuming and consuming and fattening ourselves completely blind to the reality of our sin that leads to death. These are really powerful words. And they're powerful words because we think they apply to other people. And honestly, most of them probably do. But there's a warning here that's really important. Because so quickly we exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we begin to substitute these principles for things in our life. Now, we may not be lost. I may be a follower of Christ, and I may know that God wants more of me. But these worldly things interrupt my life, and I become driven by them in the pursuit of them. Right? So there's a couple of things I want you to hang on to in this passage that I think are, are just sort of small takeaways. I'm trying to cram all this stuff in a really quick time. And that's this. The first one is this. That our love for stuff, money, things, even our love for praise from people, right, 
our love for attachment and identity, all that stuff is usually driven by fear. So my desire to be kind of recognized, my desire to have things or have a better life or have a better car or have a better whatever is usually driven by fear. And not the classic kind of fear like fear of roller coasters, but really by fear. The fear that maybe if I don't, right, God won't. That Jesus isn't quite enough for me, so I need to wrap my identity around something else. A lot of times that comes in the form of a relationship. I'm single and Jesus isn't enough for me, and so I need to engage in a relationship that I know isn't what God has for me. Because I need the identity of my life. Sometimes it comes in the form of stuff. I feel, how many of you have ever felt really bad about your life for whatever reason, had a really bad day, and you went out and went shopping, and it made you feel better? We've all done it. We've all bought something to fill a void in our lives because whatever happened needed something there to cover up the true root of brokenness. And of course, you later, like, God, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. I didn't need that. I didn't want that. Now i got to pay for that. But the reality is in that moment... Jesus isn't enough for me, and so I try and fill it with something else. Fear almost always translates to lack of trust in Jesus. Almost always. And not fear like fear of roller coasters and that kind of stuff, but like really deep-seated fears, like fear of failure, fear fear of being alone, fear of not sort of being measuring up in everybody's eyes, maybe your parents' eyes, maybe your spouse's eyes. The fear of not quite being there is driven by my lack and trust that God is enough for me. That if everything else in my life disappears, no matter what it is, if God takes it all away and I am left with just he and myself, that somehow that thought is petrifying. Because I don't know that I can honestly say that, Jesus, you are enough for me, that I would be okay with just you. Consumerism drives us to a place to try and fill all the voids of sin in our life with things so that when we have fear, We can rely on other things, people, stuff, to pad our deep insecurities and failures. It's just the reality. Consumerism. Watch one commercial today and listen to what it's telling you. Your life is not enough without this, right? I mean, honestly, we've seen them. And I I make fun of the Lexus commercials or whatever, not because you can't have a Lexus, but because the image it portrays. Like, I want that. I want that giant house that looks like it's in England and everyone's got a bow on their car and it's snowing, but the snow doesn't build up on the car. I don't understand why, but it's magic, right? Snowball fight, no mittens needed. You got a Lexus. Your hands don't get cold, right? I mean, I don't know what it is, but I want that life too. We're driven by that because I want it because it covers up my own insecurities and fears and my own lack of confidence or kind of reality that Jesus is enough for me. Second thing we really see in here is this, and that saving, all right, quickly becomes hoarding. There's a very fine line here. Now, I'm not telling you don't save money. I'm not telling you don't send your kids to college. I'm not saying don't have a retirement plan. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying there's a very fine line between saving and hoarding. Now, the Bible's very specific. Be careful not to store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, right? We looked at that last week, Matthew 6. The Bible's full of references like that, Right? There's almost an allusion to it here in this passage, like your wealth will end. It's temporary. The question to ask yourself in all this is what drives my saving? What drives how I think about money? How is your giving life? Honestly, 
How much of your resources and your time and your life and your heart do you give away? I mean, that's the million-dollar question. It's not a savings wrong. What's my giving life like? Right? Does it pain me to try and write a check to the church or to somebody or to whatever or to give stuff away? Like, this isn't a a ploy for giving money to the church. It's just a, a reality of saying, how much of my life is really driven by my desire to give it away? My stuff, my time, my life. I think about this and I think, hoarding isn't about the amount of stuff you have. That's the misunderstanding. Hoarding is about my attachment to it. We tend to think it's about the the amount. I'm not a hoarder. You can have four things, and they mean so much to you. You don't know what to do without them. That's hoarding because it takes that place of God in my heart. So if someone says, hey, man, I don't have this, and I would really like this, right? What's your first reaction? Go buy it? Or here, have mine. Now, I'm not saying that somebody, I'm not going to walk up to your service and say, hey, we'd like your car, man. You're going to give me your keys now, Trev said, right? That's not what we're doing. But it's a mentality that says, what drives my heart, right? So saving quickly becomes hoarding. Watch your heartbeat there, right? Just guard your heart there, right? Don't forget how temporary stuff is, number three. Don't forget how temporary stuff is. There's whole passages about that, right? I've met more people over the course of my engagement doing church that work so hard over Christmas, 80, 100 hours a week, to try and provide a nice Christmas for their family. What's the exchange there? So you give this whole season away to work 100 hours and your kids don't even know who you are? You haven't engaged with them because you want to provide them something materially that they are going to forget about in two weeks. All this stuff is temporary. And I'm not saying don't have it. I've got it, right? I've got stuff. But I'm just saying keep in mind what really matters. What are you investing in? Are we investing in people relationally, incarnationally living with our time, right? And I've mentioned this before. I mean, my dad would would have been pushing 67 years old, right? Died when I was 23-ish. You think I wouldn't give away everything I have for five hours with him right now? You're crazy. I absolutely would. Why? Because this stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So what are we investing in, right? What are we investing in? This stuff is temporary. And then finally, the idea really comes out of the last part, and that's that our our love for stuff, our pursuit of stuff, our pursuit of the material, well, it it will blind you, and it blinds you to other things. When I become driven by my desire to acquire and have things, it's what I want. And like this passage, I forget the people in my life that matter because I'm trying to get that promotion, have that thing, get that whatever it is, buy my wife this, buy my husband that, get our kids this, and we miss the entire point. I mean, Meredith and I have done this on more than one occasion. We fought over what we're going to get our kids for Christmas. Had some kind of big argument about whatever that was, whether it was what we were going to spend or whether what the item was, and missed the entire point of what we were trying to do in the first place. It causes us to go blind, literally, to forget and not see the things that absolutely matter. So here's this. I want you to invest in what matters. I want you to take a look at this little video, and I want you to think about your life, And I want you to think about what you've invested in this Christmas. Let's take a look at it. 